Well, good morning. I don't know that I have ever been so honored uh, in that kind of introduction as I was from Sean, so thank you very much. We're going to stand, if you don't mind, in honor of reading God's Word. If you have your Bibles with you, it's Psalm 34. And before we do that, and as you're standing, I hope that you will join me in prayer. Lord God of heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out here, that we might be a people who praise your name together and forever. Speak powerfully here, Lord, and may we through the mystery of the proclamation of your word by a mere man, encounter the risen Savior by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you might have gathered, we're going to talk a little bit about praise this morning from the songs we've been singing. But right now I'm just going to open with the reading of Psalm 34. Beginning at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Please, uh, please have a seat. Well, I don't know many of you, but I would venture to say that praise comes incredibly naturally to you, just as it does to me. And let me give you an example. Football season's about to start. I see some college football boys over here. And when Aaron Rodgers takes the field, let me tell you what I'm going to begin to do. I am going to begin to praise, because that guy can play, Right? Let me tell you something else I praised. Just this week, I ordered Pestzilla over Amazon. Pestzilla? You don't know it? The electric bug zapper? Oh, my goodness. We set that thing up on Tuesday night. It was better than any TV show I think I have ever seen. (laughs) 
bam, bam. I mean, we were so excited. And you know what I went and did the next day at the office on Wednesday? I was like, oh, let me tell you about Pessilla. Oh, let me tell you what Pessilla did. We had friends over last night. I was so excited about Pessilla. We turned off all the lights in the downstairs of the house, went outside, turned Pessilla on, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. Pessilla did not deliver last night, which, by the way, makes me praise Pessilla all the more because it just tells me the bugs are so intimidated, they're not coming into my backyard anymore. This is awesome, right? We praise easily. Until it comes to God. Do you share that? I am uh, fortunate enough that I am in corporate prayer with a lot of folks on a fairly regular basis, and I have been for a long time. And when we enter into a moment of praise, I typically hear, and by the way, some of the things that I hear are coming from my own mouth, I typically hear the three same praises. Lord, thank you for getting me up today. Lord, thank you for the many blessings that you've given to me and to my family. Lord, thank you for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, I am not trivializing or minimizing any of those things. There are a lot of people who didn't get up today. There are a lot of people who don't have a lot of blessings. There are a lot of people who do not have salvation. Those things are praiseworthy, and we should thank God for them. But if you're like me, too often the reason those are the things that you're praise, saying to God in praise is because you haven't really thought about what God has done. Amen. And you haven't really praised. So if you ask me, Dan, you just praise God for the many blessings. Name three. Uh-oh. I'm a little bit in trouble right there, right? Praise God for the salvation that he gave you, Dan. Tell me, tell me, what has changed in your life because of the salvation in Jesus Christ? Yeah. Praise comes naturally until we get to God. And then we open up Psalm 34 and listen to the first three lines. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Continually, all the time. We just sang it forever. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Amen. How is it that the man who wrote this psalm, David, the second king of Israel, and for those of you who don't know him, I'm going to give a little bit more detail as we go. But how is it that this man, David, to whom this psalm is attributed as the author, can say these things, can say that he praises the Lord at all times, continually in his mouth, well, I'm going to give you the answer. And it's so simple, we constantly overlook it. Two things. He remembered what God had done for him, and then he gave God credit for what God had done. It is that simple. And so you're probably asking, all right, as we get into Psalm 34, what did God do? What is it that God did that caused David to say, uh, uh, to pronounce these blessings forever. Well, here's what we're going to do. If you wouldn't mind, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 21, beginning at verse 10. 1 Samuel 21, beginning at verse 10. The reason I know to take you there is because the heading above Psalm 34, the title, says this. Of David, meaning written by David, when he changed his behavior, those three words are important, changed his behavior. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. 
If you've gotten to, to 1 Samuel 21 already, you're probably looking for the name Abimelech and you won't find it. You will find the name Akish. They're the same person. Abimelech, I believe, based on all the research that I've done, is simply a title, perhaps a Philistine title, uh, which means something like my father king or my father is king. But they're talking about the same person. It references the same person. All right, as you're turning to 1 Psalm 21, I want to walk through with you a little bit of history that leads us up to 1 Samuel 21. And we're going to start in chapter 17. Who here has heard the story of David versus Goliath? Okay. Almost everybody, right? Almost everybody. The story of the young man who takes down the giant. I want to walk through some details of that with you and explain to you why what he did was so significant and how it impacts the writing of Psalm 34. David was a very young man. He was the youngest of of eight brothers. And there was a great battle between the Israelites, that were David's people, and the Philistines, which were the enemies of the Israelites. And by the way, some of you are probably tuning me out because you think you know this. I beg you to listen, because it's awesome what God is going to do. And so these, their battle lines have been drawn. They're standing, the, the Philistines are on one end of the valley, the, the Israelites are on the other end of the valley. And David's father, though David is, as it's described, but a youth, David's father says, hey son, I know you're a shepherd, that's the job I have you uh, to do, but I want you to take some provisions up to your brothers who are at the front lines, and I want you to check on them. And by the way, then his dad says something very interesting, and bring a token from them back with you. Don't miss stuff like that. I mean, the only thing I can glean out of all that is that David's dad didn't trust him to go do it. And so he wanted proof that he'd actually been there. Bring a token back. I don't think his dad was looking for a souvenir from the battle, right? So he gets up there to the front lines, and what he discovers is that the Philistines are on the other end of the valley, and there's this giant of a man named Goliath. And for 40 days, Goliath stands out among all of the other Philistine soldiers, and he calls out curses upon the Israelite army and says, who among you will challenge me? Who among you thinks you can take me down? And the whole Israelite army reacts, not like this, but like this. And this young David gets up there. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? And his brothers are disgusted by that. Like, who are you, David? You're just a little punk. They sort of give him the elbow and the kick, and they say, get out of here. But that doesn't stop him. And he's so vocal about it that he ultimately gets an audience with the king whose name is Saul, the first king of Israel. He gets this audience with Saul, and he persuades Saul that he, should take on, that, that he David, should take on Goliath. And there's this funny scene where he tries to put on armor and stuff, but he's just not big enough for it. And so he does what he would always do when he was a shepherd protecting the sheep. He picks up a handful of stones, he's got his sling, and off he goes. And he goes out to meet this giant Philistine, Goliath. By the way, does anybody know where Goliath is from? Gath. You're saying, wow, what a miscellaneous fact that is. Hold that He runs out, and David runs out, Goliath comes out, and Goliath's offended. Who am I, a dog that you would send this out to me? Like, give me a break. I'm not going to kill this little kid. (laughs) 
and, and Goliath starts calling down curses upon David, and David responds with this long sort of soliloquy about how he is going to show Israel and all the world that there is a God in heaven who protects his people. And the, and the fight is on. And it lasts shorter than a point in Wimbledon. Puts the stone in the sling. Into Goliath's head. Goliath hits the ground. David runs over, grabs Goliath's giant sword. Don't miss that fact either. Grabs his giant sword. My guess is he could probably hardly lift the thing. Kills Goliath. At that point, the rout is on. The Philistines have seen this young boy take down the giant, and they gone. They are running. Well, the Israelites all of a sudden get really, really brave. And they start chasing the, the Philistines, and they are killing Philistines. It is a war, but it is a rout. And they drive the Philistines all the way back to Gath. Okay. You would think that everything would be so hunky-dory when they're coming back into Israel. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. We're going to be focused on 21 in just a minute. They're going to, the, the soldiers, the Israelite soldiers, are going to come back into town, and this is what happens. First Samuel 18, beginning at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has, come on, you know the song. Saul has struck down his thousands. And you can just picture Saul rolling into town going, Right? What do we do today? You watch these guys play football today. You get five-year-old kids going, it's hilarious. And everything's great until the second verse of that song. And David, his ten thousands. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Over the course of the next couple of chapters, you will, you will read that King Saul twice tried to pin David to the wall. Look, this is not Pinterest, right? <laughs> This is not like when I was a kid and Michael Jordan was the NBA superstar and you pinned, if your mom let you, you or if you put it in a place where you didn't think she would see it, you pinned the poster of Michael Jordan up on your wall. This is a spear taken by a grown man, a warrior, King Saul, and <clears throat> at least twice he tried that. And David, he missed both times. David dodged it both times. We're going to fast forward a couple of chapters, and what you're going to see is that Saul is going to continually be on the hunt for David. And David is horrified. He is very scared. So scared, in fact, that he leaves town with no weapons and no provisions, no food. In a very bad way. Fortunately, he runs into a priest, and the priest gives him a little bit of food, and he also gives him a sword. It happened to be Goliath's sword. Anybody remember where Goliath is from? Yeah. Remember, Goliath is a giant. Everybody knows him. He's a Philistine. He stands among an army, and he is in front. And everybody knows that his sword is gargantuan. So when they see the sword, they know that that's, 
That's Goliath's sword. And so David is really afraid. Now finally, we get to 1 Samuel 21, beginning at verse 10. David rose and fled that day from King Saul and went to Achish, remember, that's Abimelech, went to Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? By the way, he wasn't king. There's some really critical history that I don't have time to share with you this morning, but he was not king at that time. He went to Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Isn't it amazing that this song that the Israelite people were singing that was designed to praise David? Remember the same song that they sang when they were coming back, and Saul said no. That may praise David, but that's a snare now to David, because I will try to kill him. And when David hears, then the, 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 the Philistines in Gath say this same song, he knows it's not his, for his praise, it's for his doom. Do you get it? You follow me? My wife asked me last night, well, how did they hear the song? I don't know how they heard the song. Maybe they had a really awesome transmitter. I, I don't know how they heard the song. But it was so renowned what David had done that word had spread. And David took these words to heart. I'll let you think about, use your imagination of what's going on in David's mind at that moment. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Well, what's going on here? And by the way, beginning in chapter 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave at Adullam. All right, what's happening here? David knows that he is going to be killed. Remember all those references to Gath? Goliath's from Gath. He killed Goliath from Gath. The Philistine army was driven back to Gath. He now has Goliath's sword from Gath. And he is the one responsible. David, single-handedly, according to the, this song, is the one responsible for thousands of Philistines dying. Maybe Achish's kid, cousin, friend. His life is in danger. And don't miss also some really interesting little language in here when it says that David was in their hands. This is not like the song we just sang a couple of minutes ago that we are in God's hands. Wrong hands. Wrong hands, right? This is not the Allstate commercial in good hands, right? This is he is in the hands of the enemy. They have seized him. By the way, that's for the word that the title of Psalm 56 uses, which describes this is another psalm describing the same incident that he's been seized and brought before the king. He's going to die. And the best David can do is act like he's crazy. We had some friends over last night, and we were talking about this, and one of the guys, Grant, says, well, so what if he's crazy? They'll still kill him. Right? Right? But they don't. Just reading this in isolation, this passage from 1 Samuel 21, you might think David is the greatest actor of all time. That he somehow tilted his head just right. So when that spittle started to run down his beard, he made himself look really crazy. No. 
No, he knew who was responsible for what had taken place. He knew that it wasn't his capability as an actor to trick them. It was God had intervened. Back to Psalm 34, beginning at verse 4. I sought the Lord. We just sang that beautiful song. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, not this great king, not this great warrior. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. See, David understood something. David understood that his deliverance was not of his own doing. David remembered what God had done for him. Remember, we talked about this a minute ago. And then gave credit to God for having done it. He's desperate. He prays. God delivers him. But notice now, don't miss this. Notice how David's praise is not meant to be one-on-one between him and God. That though he has a private, personal relationship with God, it is more than that, right? Listen to how David invites people into the goodness of God when he begins to praise. Back to Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear. How are they going to hear? David's got to tell them. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name. What? Together. See, the idea is when God made us, when God saves us, when God delivers us, it's frankly not just for us. It's not just for me. That God calls us to remember what he, what, what, what he has done for us, but then he calls us to share it with others. Why? Why do you think that might be so? Because he loves us. His desire is to make himself known, and in making himself known, more people will get to know how awesome he is, and as more people get to know how awesome he is, guess what? More people begin to follow him, and the kingdom of God grows and it grows, and it grows. That is our call, to remember what God has done for us, to praise God for it, and to tell others so we can invite them into the praise. It is so encouraging. I mean, how many of you have ever heard somebody else tell a story of how God moved and you were encouraged about it? And I'm not just talking about Uh, You know, he was sick, and they went to the doctor and got better. And we're like, yeah, God moved, God moved. And you're like, well, did he? I mean, God is sovereign over all things. I'm not trying to make a comment about that. But lots of people go to the doctor and get well. Lots of people take medicine and get well. But there are instances, I trust this is true in an audience of this size, there are instances in which God moved in your life, and you know it. You need to tell people about that. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of things in my own life. God has saved me from financial ruin at least three times. I am not making that up. Like, I'm not overstating it. The circumstances were dire. We were in bad, bad shape. Three times, God delivers me. God delivered me from job loss on multiple occasions. Once when I worked in a... Once. I'm trying to count the number of layoffs in a period of about two years, maybe 
40, 30, somewhere north of 20. And I got pay raises during that time too. And I'm not up here saying, you should have seen my performance. Woo! Because God also saved me from job loss when I screwed up at work. One of my favorite stories of when God moved and delivered was when my older daughter, Maddie, this is 11 years ago, was diagnosed with toxic shock syndrome. She's just a kid. The day before Easter, we go to an Easter egg hunt. She gets a cut. A couple of days later, she, she can't move. And when I reached to touch her, she whelped in pain. And I was like, hey, honey, come on. I know you're not feeling well, but don't overdo it. I did not, in case you're wondering, I did not win Father of the Year that year. It was close. It was close, but I didn't win it. We take Maddie to the hospital, and uh, immediately, sorry, we take her to the doctor. They check her out, and they immediately admit her through the emergency room, and boom, put her into a room, and they have her on all kinds of antibiotic cocktails. Seven? Were you seven, honey? Seven years old. Been scared before? For somebody else you love? We were praying like crazy. Let me tell you what God did. She got admitted into the hospital on Friday. Saturday night, it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, which is really Sunday morning. I'm up in the hospital room with Maddie, and I'm praying like mad. And I remembered something that my father-in-law, who is not a believer, said to me earlier that day. He said, Dan, I am praying for Maddie. Now, you don't know my father-in-law. For my father-in-law to say that he is praying is a very big deal. And God made it absolutely clear to me in that moment, she's going to be fine, Dan. I was so confident, maybe I didn't hear it in my ears, it just in my spirit, I was so confident that she was going to be fine. When folks from our church came over after church the next morning and the next afternoon, I'm smiling and giggling and laughing, and I'm telling you, these people must have thought I had lost it. Because there's my daughter. By the way, when the doctor drew like a, a picture to show where Maddie was on the spectrum when we brought her into the hospital, he essentially drew, drew a cliff. And she was already over the cliff when we got her into the hospital. Now, did medicine save her? You bet. Super thrilled about some awesome doctors at St. Mary's Hospital in Richmond, Virginia. Did God tell me for certain that she would be fine and it had changed my confidence about what was going to happen over a period of eight days in the pediatric ICU? Yes. Amen. I knew God had moved. And you want to know what I started to do? <laughs> tell people. <laughs> I started to tell people. You may think I'm crazy, but God told me she was going to be fine. And there she is, sitting right over there, healthy as can be, getting ready to go off to college. Amen. Praise God. God for that. I'm hoping you guys have stories. I hope you don't have to go through anything like that. But I hope that if you have to go through something like that, you have stories of when God moved. And he's asking you, remember when he moved. And give him credit for it. I want to tell you one more. One more. Years ago, my wife was under spiritual attack. She didn't tell me about it. She didn't tell anybody about it. She was invited by a friend to go to this prayer conference, effectively. And she goes to this prayer conference. We didn't even know the woman that well who had invited Nancy, but Nancy goes and uh, gets up there, and it's fine. Everything's good. They're praying a lot. Everything's great. And Nancy's ready to go home. 
And the woman says, no, 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 stay for this last one. Stay for this next one. And they go into this next meeting area. And the man who was leading that particular prayer gathering says, God told me seven people are experiencing this particular thing. And I want you, all, I want you seven to come up. By the way, you're talking to a guy who's like systematic theology. This was not fitting with the way I was thinking at the time. Seven of you come up. Nancy doesn't move. Like four people go up. Dude's like, no, seven. Nancy and two other people go up. This guy prays over my wife, whispering in her ear, ear, her ear so that no one else can hear it. And she repeats to Nancy what Nancy has never said to anyone about some event in her life. And Nancy just crumbles, right? Crying like crazy. She gets home that night, and it's about an hour away. She gets home that night, and I, I, anybody see a woman after she's been crying for a long time really hard? It's like, honey, you, honey how, how was it? How was it tonight, honey? Are you Okay. Yes, I'm fine. I just, I just need to get some rest. I need to go to bed. Okay, okay. Is it me? Is it me? Did I do something wrong, honey? No, no, no. Just, it's not all about you, Dan. Not everything's about you, brother. I'm going, I'm going up to bed. Next morning, we get up. Sunday morning, we go to church. After church, I go for a run with my best friend, Andrew. And Andrew says, Dan, what happened at that prayer gathering that Nancy went to yesterday? I said, man, I don't know. <laughs> All I know is she was crying like crazy when she got home, and I don't know what happened. And he said, and I quote, Dan, I saw Nancy in church today, and she was radiant. Radiant. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. I pressed and pressed and pressed until Nancy finally told me what had happened, the same story that I just repeated to you. And by the way, I don't know many more details than that. And you know what happened to me? My faith grew. Nancy had been delivered. I start joining her in the praise of God. Do you see that? Do you see how that it becomes infectious? And so I tell my friend Andrew, my running buddy, hey, Andrew, let me tell you what happened. Praise God, and we are all starting to praise God together. I sought the Lord, right? We started to praise God together. And so this is the key and significant point, and David's going to do it as he transitions in Psalm 34, that praise is not for me alone. It's not for the individual alone. It is for the community of God's people to encourage them. And even more than that, it is for people who don't know God. Listen to this. Verse 8, oh, taste. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David starts to make an invitation to people. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There are wild animals out there that can destroy you. They'll go hungry, but my God, he will provide. Amen. Come, verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. It is praise creates this, this situation where you can teach people about God. 
make an invitation for them to know. Not this God that issues rules, this cosmic judge that people have heard about and are afraid of. And by the way, is he a cosmic judge? You bet he is. Should we be afraid? Fear the Lord. That's what the word says. But he is so much more than that. And he calls us to taste him. That's physical. It's tangible. It's real. It's not this way, way, way far away thing. God is calling us to be invited into his presence that we might know him more fully and make him more fully known among people who are skeptics or don't believe. It's real. That's why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He wants people to feed on him. There's something so intimate about eating, right? About Revelation 3.20, I know that a lot of you guys know this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, what? I will come in and eat with him and he with me. God desires this intimate relationship that saves a man like David out of dire circumstances. And he desires that relationship for you. And he desires that relationship for people who aren't in this room today. Who would never darken the door of a church. Because his love is so good. It's actually coming to know him and to experience him. One way, another way that we get to experience God is not only through this invitation to taste him, to experience him, to walk with him, to know him. David says this beginning in verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? call, God's invitation is not that we walk by this rule-oriented mentality. God is calling us to walk with him knowing what is good for us. How many people do you know who have gone down a bad path with bad decision after bad decision and you sit back and you go, it's a bad decision after a bad decision and you know what's coming. The consequences are obvious and God is just trying to awaken us to say, I'm trying to save you from you from your own bad decisions. Can I get a witness? I mean, that's my own testimony, right? And so God God is trying to invite us into this beautiful relationship with him, walking with him, tasting him, having this intimate relationship with him because he's so good. And I wrote this down. I want to say it just so. When we share how God cared for us through our pain, and delivered us, we invite others into his presence. Do you get the significance of that? When we share how God cared for us through our pain and delivered us, we invite others into his presence. And listen, we are going to walk in pain. And the psalmist doesn't deny that. Beginning at verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Why do they got to cry if they're not experiencing pain? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Well, who do you think they're doing evil against? When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near. It's one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, 
but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It's not that we're going to not have pain. It's that God was calling us into his presence. And by the way, he might use our pain. I have a personal testimony about this, but due to time, I won't share it. He will use our pain to make his greatness and goodness known to others. I've seen that with my own eyes. All right. I think the psalmist could have ended there. With verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He could have ended there. But then he makes this, takes this interesting turn. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And to the Jewish mind at David's time, they must have read that and like, I must have transcribed that wrong. What do you, what do you say? He keeps his bones. That means none of us are going to get broken bones. Listen, I have a story about a ripstick and, a bro- and some broken bones I could share with you. Like, just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean you're not going to have a broken bone or two, including a cracked rib from a ripstick. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. What in the world does that mean? It is first a reference to Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 43. I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to tell you when the punchline comes, all right? And the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter 12, verse 43, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. And, and here's the punchline, you shall not break any of its bones. So somehow, David begins this transition of talking about salvation, deliverance from a particular set of circumstances and transitions that back to the Passover lamb. You know the story, right? The Passover lamb, the Israelites, they're enslaved in Egypt. God tells them, put the blood on the doorpost. And the angel of the Lord that passes through to take the firstborn of all the Egyptians, if he sees the blood, he will pass over. Hence the name, he will pass over your house. And we know, because we know the rest of the story, that that Passover... And that Passover lamb whose blood is shed and put on the doorstep is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And when you get to John chapter 19, verse 36, John will say that none of his bones, Jesus, meaning hanging on the cross for us, none of his bones were broken, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord. This interesting turn is that God's promise is not only to save us from circumstances, and by the way, the way he saves us from circumstances might not be the way we would have chosen to be saved, but not not only saves us from our circumstances, he saves us from our sin. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems, whoa, the Lord redeems the life of his servants, redeems, paid a ransom for, bought with, He redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That in the middle of this awesome story of 
David praising God for what he has done. He drops this messianic puzzle piece and he says there will be one to come. Even if you watch the transition of the words, it's like God will save them, God will save them, God will save them. And then it pops up in, in uh, verse 20. He, he keeps all his bones. It's like, a, it's like a messianic breadcrumb almost. And we get to track that down and sleuth it out and see that it is a picture of Jesus who comes for us who saves us, who redeems us by his blood, saving us. Amen. And then, I, like I said in verse 21, none of those who, 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What does that make? Where does your mind go as soon as I say, you shall not be condemned? Romans 8.1, thank you, Jason. Romans 8.1, what does it say? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So let me close this way. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have reason to praise. All right? So do it. Do it. And share that good news with others. Be that invitation card for others that they can come to know him as well. And if you don't, if you are not a follower of Jesus, can I invite you? By the way, Nancy's like, don't tell that story. We know that story. I'm like, the new church doesn't know that story. They've never heard that before. <laughs> you might know it, but others don't know it. I'm going to brag on God, right? If you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you, taste and see that this God is good. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this word. I thank you for the call for us to praise, to remember what you've done and to share it with others that it may be encouraged and we might invite others into the fellowship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I trust you that your word will not come back void. Do your awesome work, Lord, in our hearts. Draw us to you that we might praise, that we especially those who do not know you might taste and see that you are good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.